Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and in the Physics World magazine and on physicsworld.com we've recently been covering the carbon footprint of physics as a discipline. A feature article from March this year by Michael Allen considers the huge footprint of large-scale computing. In this episode of the podcast we'll talk to two scientists who alongside the work they're doing are trying their best to make sure that the science we do is also looking after the planet as best as possible. Unusually for the podcast, we'll hear from somebody from another field of science. But first up, here's an astrophysicist. My name is Simon Portugies Zwart. I am a professor in computational astrophysics at Leiden Observatory at the University of Leiden. I'm doing research on uh, astrophysical phenomena using computers, mostly. What, what are you looking at? Well... I, I guess that with the computer, the uh, the entire universe is my playground, and I I like uh, to think freely as as like a free range thinking about universe and computing in uh, in both aspects. Um, so I also like other things in computing, like the hardware, the software, the mathematics which goes behind it, the algorithms that uh, that you need, the writing, the software itself. Um, and the astrophysics. So all these things combined makes my job in a computational astrophysicist. Okay, but what sort of thing might you be looking at from an astrophysical point of view? I, I would I would say basically everything. So um, I like the small scales, uh, like the formation of planets or the evolution of asteroids to uh, the evolution of multiple stars or individual stars even. Uh, how stars interact with each other, how they dynamically interact, the, the role of gravity, um, the role of, of gas interacting with stars, so in star clusters, in star cluster formation, how that works together in the galaxy if you have the interaction with uh, dark matter uh, or something else, uh, how the stars interact with each other in that environment, how you get something like Oumuamua, the, the object that was discovered a few years ago. That was a complete surprise to many astronomers at least. And how galaxies form and interact together. I guess one of the few things that is not really part of my academic palette is uh, chemical evolution and radiation and interaction with chemical evolution, the, the, the interaction between radiation and chemistry. I'm not a chemist. I don't know much about it. And I think it's a fascinating field, but it is just a little bit too far from my uh, academic uh, palette. Now, we'll return to the main topic of this podcast very soon, but I hope you'll indulge me a small diversion because I'm endlessly fascinated by Oumuamua having written a feature about it for Physics World several years ago. And I wondered what the role is of a supercomputer in trying to work out the origin of something like Oumuamua, this surprising visitor from another star that entered our solar system. Well, actually, uh, a few years ago when Oumuamua was observed, I I, uh, wrote a paper exactly about this topic, uh, being a surprise to me at least that this object existed. And if you think about it, and if you do simulations of its existence and where you expect these objects to move around in the galaxy, it turns out, as in many things, that it, in the end, it isn't that surprising that the object should have been discovered if you look carefully at the sky. Um, and in, in, in this case, the use of supercomputers or the use of any computer would be, in my case, to, to try to make estimates of where does it come from, uh, what does it do, how does it appear to be the way it is, and where does it go? And to be to be a bit more explicit in that, is uh, what we figured out is that 
Oumuamua is a type of object that naturally follows out of the planet formation process. And if you make planets, you make a lot of these uh, pieces of junk, uh, like Oumuamua, which are spreading around by the star making the planets into the galactic uh, potential. And therefore, any other star that moves around in the galactic potential may meet a few of these objects. Now, if you're anything like me, that begs a question. And don't worry, I do ask that question later in the podcast. Astrophysicists use supercomputers to process the enormous amounts of data collected by telescopes and to carry out simulations to understand cosmological processes. But should we be concerned about the amount of energy that they use? No, I, I, yeah, I think I think we should be concerned. I don't think we should worry. Um, I mean, we should, of course, we should worry about the climate uh, because we are using too many resources uh, or natural resources in order to to keep our uh, convenient, healthy life. But uh, computers take an awful lot of energy to work, and um, the, I think. I think the underlying problem... So I think this is the fundamental problem, right? Supercomputers in particular are extremely power hungry. And uh, some people uh, use them maybe in, in not the ideal way, which I would say something like uh, mining bitcoins, yeah, which is extremely energy unfriendly. But also high-performance computing in science is extremely environmentally unfriendly, as long as these computers are not powered by renewable resources. So one solution, of course, is to power these machines by renewable resources. But the problem there is, of course, there is a limited supply of renewable resources. And therefore, if supercomputers all use renewable resources, then the people at their homes are doomed to use oil and gas in order to heat their uh, environment. I mean, it's, it's, it's always a sort of a, a two-side. Eh? You, you can be, say, I'm, I'm using only green supercomputers, but then, of course, they take away the, the greeniness from other people. So I think this is this is the main issue. Um, having said that, um, uh, supercomputing in itself is not the worst thing, at least for astronomers, is not the worst thing or the most damaging for the climate. I think the traveling around is way more uh, uh, demanding on the climate, on, on at least the renewable resources. And of course, astronomers like uh, to have their telescopes on uh, very high spots in the mountains, which are very fragile environmentally systems. Um, and, and, you know, uh, uh, using a lot of uh, uh, debris there uh, is not good for the environment. We have fairly recently done episodes on the impact of the science that we do on our climate. But I wanted to look specifically for this one at supercomputers. How many supercomputers are there? Are you sort of um, vying for time on them you wait the way you would the Hubble Space Telescope or James Webb or something? Yeah, basically. So there, there are, let's say there are 500 supercomputers. I mean, there is, there is something what we call the top 500, which is the 500 fastest uh, computers on the planet. And they're all supercomputers. And there are more uh, than this, but this is the, the, the most powerful machines. And after that, there are, of course, the, the, the less powerful the machines become, the more there are. There's only one fastest computer, of course, and there are, you know, uh, a lot of which are 100 times slower than that. And these computers, they, the, the fastest computers, of course, they take the most energy. And the amount of energy, if you use the biggest supercomputer on the planet, uh, full force, would be comparable to, uh, to launching a spacecraft in the amount of energy it requires. Uh, or to put it in other terms, in the city I'm, I'm living in, in Haarlem, uh, the, the biggest supercomputers on the planet take as much energy as 
basically a small city like, like Harlem. So there's a considerable amount of energy going into these machines. And of course, they run 24-7. Mm. Do you have a concept of how much of that time is taken up with astronomy? Actually, it is only a small fraction. So the astronomers, they, they think themselves also always as being very, uh, using a lot of computer power, which is sort of a pride of some people. Yeah, that counts in the fastest computer on the planet. But actually, I mean, I think that astronomy is maybe 5% or 4% of the total uh, supercomputer uh, usage on the planet. And what would be the other 95%? Well, a lot goes up in chemistry and a lot goes up in, in particle physics and, uh, and, and, and regular other types of physics. Is, is there anything we can do? Like you have to use supercomputers to do the kind of science that you're wanting to do. Yes and no. Uh, I think there is a tendency of using bigger machines because they're available. And of course, they are faster, but you have to invest a lot of time to program them and program them efficiently. And that's the other part. So there there are two parts to this story. One is there is a tendency to use bigger machines. And the other thing is there is a tendency to to, to be a little bit sloppy in optimization if you have a faster computer. And these two things, I think, are not really necessary in in many cases. Uh, You can do very nice uh, scientific calculation on smaller computers in which case you have to program a little bit more efficiently. So you have to be more efficient in or spend more time in how you optimize your codes. And of course, there are problems which just are get better if you have the bigger machines. So I think you should use the biggest machines really for the biggest problems, for where you really need those machines. But those codes should be you know, as optimized as possible in order to be as environmentally friendly as possible. But... I like, for example, to, uh, to, to use a, a lot of uh, computer time on, you know, cheap laptops or, well, not cheap laptops, but, but uh, laptop computers, uh, which are about the most environmentally friendly you can have because these machines are built to run on a battery rather than on uh, being plugged into the, the, the wall. But modern laptops are, are so amazingly fast already uh, that many calculations done actually on bigger machines could be done on uh, more efficiently on, on, on laptops. On the other side, I mean, at the same time, using a supercomputer, of course, uh, everything goes faster. You don't have to run it uh, for a week or so. But that's surely not going to make up for the for the, the amount of power you're using compared to a laptop. That's right. That's right. One of the ways we might be able to reduce the time on computers is more efficient coding. Of course, many people have been talking about it for very long times, uh, and there, there are many aspects on efficient coding. First of all, uh, the choice of computer language is important. Uh, the, the choice of algorithm is important, and the detail of, of uh, what you need in your calculation, of course, is important too, right? We cannot simulate nature the way nature is, we don't want that because then we wouldn't be able to interpret nature as uh, as we do now. And then we have to, uh, the, 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 the simulations would be as complicated as the observations and we have the same problem. So the whole strength of simulation is to leave everything out what is not necessary, in your opinion. And that makes the calculations doable, faster and interpretable. So the question is, can you leave out more and still get the answer you got? And the tendency in science is to include as much as possible because you know everything seems to be important but sometimes you know depends on the question now in terms of of more efficient coding uh, so you have the algorithms you have what can you leave out but you also have the optimization of the hardware like uh, using gpus instead of cpu 
there are, and, you know, you, you wouldn't believe it almost, but there are still people using CPUs for their daily calculations, where GPUs, or the graphical processing units, are a thousand times more efficient than CPU. It is like almost as I, if I see people using, you know, high performance computing completely based on, on CPU, that they're taking a, a big truck, you know, a 30 ton truck to go to the supermarket in order to, uh, to buy a, a dozen eggs. They think, well, this is this is not efficient. So that is definitely part of uh, of a change in the community. I think more efficient programming, parallelization, uh, optimum use of the hardware, the better algorithms, uh, and 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 uh, and and the proper language uh, which associated with that. And is is there particular languages that we people should be using? Is it about that? Well, that is this is an extremely difficult discussion because if you really want to make it as optimum as possible, you should program in assembler probably. And with all with all respect, but I, I, I do not recommend most people to use assembler, and I think everybody knows why. I don't know why. Can you tell me why? Okay, so, so there are several reasons why. First of all, it's it's machine dependent. To those of you who are listening who are not so familiar with computer programming, and as you heard, that's included me, an assembler is a program used to produce the intermediate machine language that takes your computer code and assembles it into binary machine instructions that your computer processor understands. That was a nice description that I heard on Jacob Sorber's YouTube channel. Uh, it is a tremendous pain to to write an assembler and to change language every time you have a new computer or a new chipset. Um, and the, the languages are not built to uh, communicate with a human. They're built to communicate with a computer. So you really have a, a long baseline of learning in order to, to learn these languages. There are languages which are much easier to program a computer with, like Fortran or C or C++. And, you know, there are, I don't know, 200, 250 languages uh, to program a computer with. So the best way probably for a human, and it's, it's a balance between investing time and optimization and the possibility to optimize certain parts of your code. So the best probably is having a, a, a relatively quick language where you can rapidly prototype your problem, like you can do in Python, uh, then optimize the parts which are uh, uh, take a lot of time on the computer and parallelize them using either C or maybe even assembler. So having a sort of hybridization of, of languages. The, the difficulty herein is that, that, for example, for an astronomer, I mean, I'm, I'm trained as an astrophysicist. Uh, so what astrophysics should I not learn in order to learn to program, right? I mean, I would love to, to teach my students uh, assembler and, and the most optimum way of using a computer, but you know, I, I want them to know orbital mechanics too. And I want them to know about uh, stellar evolution and hydrodynamics. So uh, I have to, somewhere you have to, uh, to, uh, to dilute the, the knowledge. That's not the only area where balancing of time comes into play. The problem is uh, human time versus computer time versus environment, right? So it is a sort of a continuous tension between these, these three fields. I would like to spend as least time as possible programming in order to do my physics, and I wanted to do as fast as possible. So in some sense, several of these aspects go together. And I think one of the problems we have at the moment is that we don't really know very well how efficient our coding is in terms of energy. And of course, we can look up the specs of a computer, uh, but it is very hard to determine um, how, how bad you're doing if you're just running a full computer uh, at full force. Um, and I think it, it would be good if there is a little bit more research on this.
and and I was a bit surprised by uh, one of the papers I, I wrote recently on on this aspect, how little information there was available on actually these uh, actual measurements. We'll return to Simon later in the podcast, but some scientists, this time from outside the world of physics, have developed a tool called green algorithms that can help us to understand the impact of the computations of our work. My name is Loïc Lanelong. I'm a research associate in biomedical data science at the University of Cambridge. Uh, and for the past two years, I've been uh, studying the uh, carbon footprint of computational science in general, uh, with a slight focus on computational biology. It all started actually with the uh, bushfires in Australia. Uh, so in at the January 2020, because part of our lab is based in Melbourne, so we have a lot of collaborators there. So uh, it was kind of like a striking, you know, manifestation of climate change. Um, and at the same time, we came across an article by Emma Struble, which was one of the first articles about the carbon footprint of AI and natural language processing. Uh, so you may have come across the headline saying that, you know, one AI is as bad as five uh, cars during their lifetime and it got picked up quite a lot and so we just wanted to know what's the carbon footprint of what we're doing and that was the main question we you know very small question we're like okay well ai can have a large carbon footprint but we you know algorithms we use in ca uh, computational biology also you know they run for a long time they, can, they, they we need a lot of resources a lot of memory so maybe there's a large carbon footprint there too and i thought it would be a two days project you know we just look it up find a calculator somewhere it would be brilliant it turns out there was no way to find it. So I poked around a little bit and there was just no tool at all and no one was looking at it. Uh, so there was a little bit of work done for deep learning in particular, but very specific to the tools and the hardware used by deep learning. And that was it. So suddenly we're like, okay, well, there's clearly a need for that. And it seems a bit, you know, we, especially in biology, the big part of our focus is to improve human health. But also what we're doing also contribute to climate change, which has a massive impact on, um, well, on human health. So it sounds like we should be acknowledging it uh, to some extent. And so that's really what started it. And there was no tool to do it. So I, yeah, uh, in collaboration with uh, Jason Greeley from uh, the Bacon Institute and Michael Inouye from Cambridge, we, we tried to build one. Uh, so that's what created the Green Algorithms Project, really. No calculator. And I thought what was more important than just another theoretical paper that, you know, not many people would read rather, rather, was rather an online tool so that scientists, in my case, who wanted to do exactly what I wanted to do, could have a tool without spending, you know, months trying to understand how each component works and things like that. So you've been using it. What have you found? Not big surprise, but we found that, yes, when an algorithm runs for days or, like, or even just hours, but using a lot of uh, processing cores and a lot of memory, it has a significant carbon footprint. And by significant, it can uh, be, you know, depending on the task, it can be equivalent to uh, many flights between uh, Europe and the US, for example. So that's the orders of magnitudes we can be talking about. Doesn't mean all tasks have large carbon footprints. Lots of analysis, you know, they run fairly quickly. The kind of thing, you know, you, you, you would, uh, you take an image, you export it in PDF, for example, it's a blink of an eye. That doesn't have a huge carbon footprint, not at all. But uh, yeah, many tasks do have large carbon footprints. And especially, it, like, it's across all fields of science. So uh, it's, uh, they, there's a lot of that in physics, obviously, because lots of simulations, for example. So in our initial work, we started by trying to look a bit at everything. So we looked at physics simulation, weather forecast, this kind of thing. And yeah, all these all these tasks have carbon footprint. 
one thing that does seem to make a difference is where the science is taking place. To find the carbon, algor- the carbon footprint of running a task, you know, running an algorithm. So it's just based on the energy needed to power the computer during that time. And to do that, it depends on two things, how much energy you need and what's the carbon footprint of producing this energy. That's a very simple formula. Uh, so obviously, because it's such a like linear relationship, if you multiply the carbon footprint of producing energy by two, you multiply the total thing by two. And what we found is the discrepancies between com- countries is, is like huge. For a simple example is if you run the exact same tool, exact same analysis on the exact same hardware in Switzerland compared to Australia, the task will emit 74 times more greenhouse gases. Wow. Because Australia, the energy mix is massively based on gas, where like Switzerland is based on hydro and a part nuclear from France and things like that. So yeah, so it's just based on how energy is produced. We have to do science, right? Because... It's the most important thing that we do as humans. I mean, I'm biased, but we have to do science. It it seems to me that we're going to use energy. So if we find ways of making the energy more efficiently, more sustainably, and use those, use solar, use hydro, use use wind, then then that's the answer, isn't it? Or or can we look at what we're doing as well? I think it's both. Uh, I I think... Well, I mean, we've seen with the like the recent like IPCC reports. Really, it's just we can't afford to just say this part is the biggest chunk of the emission, so we can afford to not look at everything else. That's the argument we've seen for like not you know climate change deniers uh, in all over the world saying, oh, my country and and for example, I've heard that a lot in France. My country is only responsible for like one point two percent of emissions, so you know there's no point doing it. Uh, the US and China should be doing all the work. But actually, that's not true. What we need is like across the board, every single like uh, aspect needs to be tackled and reduced. So yes, uh, reduce, like having more efficient energy is undoubtedly like one thing to be done. Uh, and it's, it will have orders of magnitude more impact than what we can do by addressing the carbon footprint of science. Uh, because, you know, obviously it will benefit housing, uh, you know, all aspects of energy usage. So that's that's without a doubt. But also as scientists, we have limited impact on that. You know, through like what we're doing, it, we, they, they can be grassroots movements or things like that. But, you know, through our science, there's limited impact we can do about the energy policy of a country. Uh, so that's why it is definitely what would be the more efficient way. Uh, but that's not what we can do personally. So that's why we looked at like, what can we do as scientists instead of, you know, tackling that. But to answer, to answer your point about we need to do science, I totally agree. I mean, I would be out of a job, especially my background is machine learning. <laughs> so, uh, you know, if I say we can't do heavy AI anymore, I, I need to find something else to do. Uh, but the, the whole point of this project is definitely not to do, to say we shouldn't do science and not even to say we shouldn't do big analysis. Like some of the large models have, like brilliant outcomes and you know it, it's just a cost-benefit analysis it's just saying we if we don't acknowledge at all the carbon cost we can't decide whether or not it's worth it so it's just saying if we if in the first place we consider the carbon cost the same way we consider the financial cost you know it's not because it costs money that we don't do things anymore but instead before doing it we say okay is it still worth doing say i'm a scientist and i go to your website what 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 happens what what can what, how can it help? So the website is very much is very much a tool. 
so I'd say the, the important things to do as a scientist is before running a large scale project. Again, I'm not I'm not saying we should like burden all of us with like all the possible details and every and before run, clicking every button you should estimate the carbon footprint. Not at all. But you know, before running something significant that will require hours or days of, of computation and like loads of memory, lots of uh, cores. Just plug in what you think the time will be. Just estimate the carbon footprint beforehand and, and look at what the carbon footprint will be and say, okay, do I think it's worth it or am I just running it for the sake of it? And I don't, you know, actually I don't really need it. It's not worth that waste of carbon. Um, so that's the first thing. Then mitigate the carbon footprint as much as possible. And I'll, I'll just come back to that in a moment. Um, and then afterwards, once you know the results are here, I think it's important we acknowledge what the carbon cost of that was. Uh, the same way you acknowledge you know, ethical concerns after you've done a study with animals or humans, or you know, just saying, okay, um, this was the analysis, brilliant results, we're really happy with it. And that's what we've been trying to do and encourage people to do is to just include acknowledgements at the end of the publication saying, running all this work or, tr- or this new tool cost, like emitted that much carbon. And it's not a bad thing. It's just something so people are aware that this is the cost of running such analysis. And it means people who want to replicate it or people who want to use the tool, scientists who want to use the tool later on, well, they can, you know, they know what they're getting into. So I think that's, that's the, the important thing. Um, mitigating, obviously, is, is really important. Uh, and there are many ways to do that. Uh, I would suggest people can check out. We published a paper called "Paper called Ten Simple Rules to Make Your Research More Environmentally Sustainable," and um, that's basically yeah a very short ten simple rules article. So very easy to read, a bit more easy, like a bit easier than a long method paper or anything. And, and that just lists how what you can do. But basically, it means uh, making the code efficient when you can. I mean, we've all been there saying I could either spend half an hour being smart about the code and reduce, you know, how much memory I need for like, for example, to merge two tables or things like that. or say, oh, I can't be bothered. Instead, I'll just like request 100 gigabytes on the HPC server and I'll just do it in five minutes. And that's, I mean, I've done it. I, I'm, many of us have done it, I'm sure. And, and that's a completely valid point. Sometimes it's not worth, but... Sometimes it's worth just like plugging in, thinking, okay, well, maybe it's worth being efficient, especially if many people will be using my code in the future and all things like that. So just having that in mind, uh, using updated softwares uh, is a painless way to do it. I know I know, everyone hates updating softwares because it usually breaks the entire pipeline, so, so you don't want to touch it. But uh, sometimes we, we did the example with uh, genome-wide association studies that try to find association between... Um, uh, genomic variants and traits and so they require like large volume of data because lots of participants and so they, they're quite computationally intensive which try to find association between a lot of things together um, and these we find by just updating from one version of a tool to the next one you you would like reduce the carbon footprint by 50 or 60 percent uh just because and, and that's entirely you know just because the authors made the the package a lot more efficient so in many cases, actually, you you would reduce runtime, so it would make life easier. Life easier anyway. It's not just about these huge computer processes, though. There's a message in here for all of us. The total life cycle environmental impact of your laptop, uh, between seventy and eighty percent of it, is only due to manufacturing. So actually, you know, uh, if you only charge your laptop every other day instead of charging it every day, 
okay, but you're only acting on 20% of the total share because the bulk of it is extracting the raw material, fabric, like making it, shipping it to you and things like that. So typically keeping your device, phone, tablet, laptop for longer is much better than, you know, trying to not charge it as much or things like that. So that's why the like keep, repair, reuse motto is, is quite a good one. So sort of updating your phone every year is not an ideal scenario. No, it's, it, it, really, it really isn't, no. Regular listeners to the Physics World Stories podcast will remember our September episode where we explored the importance of free and open source software. The code for green algorithms is freely available on GitHub. Well, the idea from the start was we can't have a black box and, you know, scientists put on numbers and then they have like a a carbon footprint popping out without being able to check where it comes from. Uh, We thought it was really important people could trust it and it would be, so that's why everything is open source. Uh, All the data is available there. Um, All the papers on the topic are are also open access Uh, because we thought, you know, if someone wants to dive in and check what, you know, how we made the calculation exactly or what the code does or what data we use. It's completely out there. Uh, it's been, I mean, it's been great. I know some people, for example, uh, got in touch because they they were like, oh, the calculator is great, but we would like to like make a local version for our own institution to have like our own hardware on it. Can we, and, and on GitHub, it's really easy. You can just fork it. You know, you just download it and you have your own copy and you can edit the code and it's your own version. And that was brilliant. That's the goal. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be our thing or I you know I I'm really happy when people do these kind of things it's been great to be able to share all the code I think it's quite an important part of of these kind of projects Simon Porchevisvat worked with some other scientists to calculate the impact of astronomy and astrophysics not just looking at the computational side of things it was a sort of consortium uh, effort uh, by uh, the environmentally committee of the Dutch uh, astronomical society or the Dutch uh, astronomical community uh, led by NOVA and, and what we call the Raad van de Astronomie in Dutch. Um, and what we try to do is make an inventory of how much energy actually are we using? What is actually our footprint, if I can say it that way, uh, in terms of, uh, of, of carbon production or in terms of uh, renewable or non-renewable energy sources? And that was a very interesting thing to do because it, it showed that uh, computing is not a big part of that, at least as far as we could determine. Uh, but travel, which is not a complete surprise, uh, uh, takes the biggest uh, hit. And, and after travel, it is probably just the, the, the buildings itself and the commuting we are doing. And I think the interesting thing for me was that, uh, so there was a second study of uh, a big European conference, the, the European uh, Astronomical Conference held in 2018 in Lyon, in France and in 2020 in uh, Leiden, in, in the city where my university is, online because of, uh, of of the COVID pandemic. And the difference in energy of one conference to the other was a factor of 30,000, just because of, uh, well, mostly of due to the travel. So travel is way more environmentally unfriendly, as we know, right? I mean, uh, it, this is not a complete surprise, of course. But what I think what is a little bit of a surprise is that um, more than half of the uh, total amount of uh, CO2 produced in travel is from less than 10% of the people attending the conference, which are the people who travel from all the way around the world, take a flight from Australia or from Chile, 
uh, in order to get to the Netherlands. Um, and the short trips are not that bad, even though they're much more frequent. So, uh, but is the solution to that that you just have these conferences online instead? Well, uh, clearly not completely, because if the, the biggest traveling people, uh, uh, they, are, they are indeed contributing a lot, but they, they may still want to be present. Um, so so I think I think the, the story is, is twofold, right? Yes, you, you maybe you should go online for certain people or for certain conferences or for part of the conference, but you also like the sort of live feel of a conference. I mean, uh, during the pandemic, I had a, a discussion with a, with a mathematician friend once a week discussing a problem, and we couldn't get any further with the problem over the two years of having Zoom conversations. And then in this January, we came together for half an hour in a room, sitting together, we solved the problem, basically. And maybe we needed that two years of, of discussions online in order to solve it. On the other side, I have the feeling that the effectiveness of doing science, where you just bang your heads together, is, uh, is, is amazingly uh, more effective than, than having Zoom conversations. The other thing is that we, we still like these live interaction, these live conversations, so I can imagine that instead of going for a conference for three days or a week or so, you, you spend a, day, a week before visiting a few people in the neighborhood and maybe a week after that visiting another few people in the neighborhood. So you just do working visits like you, do, you did 100 years ago, right? When The moment you went traveling to another continent by ship and by, by maybe horse-drawn carts, you didn't go there for five hours to give a talk and then uh, have, hop on, on, on the, 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 the ship again. Right, so you spend much more time, and, and travel was a part of the endeavor. And I think we should, we, we probably should go back to that. There's certainly an argument for that. Stepping away from physics and thinking about the world as a whole, it's tempting to think that perhaps it's other uses of supercomputers, things like mining bitcoins, that should be the focus of people trying to reduce the impact. But there's probably a whole series of podcasts we could do discussing the various benefits of science versus finance. Let's leave that for another time, perhaps. But when it comes to blockchain, the technology underpinning Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, its uses vary massively in their ethics and environmental impacts. And you can hear a lot more about that in an interview with computer scientist Suzanne Kohler. Suzanne Kohler in an episode of the Physics World Weekly podcast from April last year. And there's no doubt from the research that's been done and as highlighted in the recent IPCC report, that every bit that we can do in our own endeavours to help fight climate change is something that we should very, very seriously consider. After all, without a habitable planet to live on, there's no point and no body to point telescopes up to the skies. I promised you we would return to the subject of Oumuamua, and the question that I couldn't help but ask was if Oumuamua is the type of object that we should be seeing fairly regularly, why haven't we seen them more regularly? Yeah, I think that's a very good question. Um, and and I, I, I wondered about that. And I'm, I'm not thinking too deeply about it at the moment, but um, I definitely would think that more would be seen. One other one was, was seen, Borisov, was discovered a year later. Uh, but I would expect that, uh, that a few more would have been seen by now. I, I, I don't know the reason. It could be statistics. But I, my hopes are on uh, the Vera Rubin telescope, so LSST, uh, which will, I hope, see uh, a daily uh, Oumuamua type object. And, um, and of course, uh, James Webb. 
uh, which doesn't have a big field of view, but you know it's it's so sharp and and uh, you know effective that it will discover a lot of these objects. I think. So I, I think it's just a matter of waiting. And the typical thing that astronomers do now we have two objects, eh, Oumuamua and Borisov. They seem to be two classifications, right? One with gas and one without gas. The third one will be a third class. Of course it will. And thank you so much to Simon and Loïc for talking to me. If you'd like to know more about the main topic of this podcast, then I can highly recommend the feature by Michael Allen on physicsworld.com, The Huge Carbon Footprint of Supercomputing. And if you'd like to know more about Oumuamua, I highly recommend several articles on physicsworld.com. And we'll be back next month with something else from this wonderful world of physics. Thank you very much for listening. Physics World.